According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. As always, our growth comes through the Scriptures. Join me in John 17 as we return to the real Lord's Prayer. John 17. It's not the one that's most commonly called the Lord's Prayer. Which is unfortunate, because the one that's commonly called the Lord's Prayer should be called the, the baby disciple prayer. They're trying to learn how to pray, and they want a pattern. There's nothing wrong with that. I'm not mocking it. I'm just saying that when you're first saved, and when you're first learning different aspects, then having a pattern prayer is helpful. It gives you an outline. It gives you principles. And you can start that way. But... You don't want to be enslaved to that because uh, then you're just, you know, confused with uh, things said by rote. The Lord uh, spoke about uh, the problem with long, windy prayers that are just repetitive over and over again or memorized uh, prayers that are recited by rote as if it's uh, a mechanical uh, incantation of some sort that, <laughs> that we can uh, do our, our sanctified spell casting through uh, <laughs> We have a Christian prayer formula and God has to answer in a certain way if we ask in just the right way. Not true. Yes, right. King James English, yeah. Incantations are always Old English. It's, it's amazing how that happens. A little bit of a Latin flair. So, in Matthew 6, and in there, the, the Lord's Prayer, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Now, the disciples had asked, Lord, teach us to pray even as John also taught his disciples. And so he said, okay, and he gave them a pattern, gave them a, a, uh, a prayer. Uh, but here we have the real Lord's Prayer. And I call it that because it is the Lord of the night in which he's betrayed, and he is praying in his capacity as the apostle and high priest of our confession. And he is praying in his capacity uh, to, to bless uh, his disciples after he departs. And we're going to talk about that. That uh, the bulk of this is a celebration of what the Father has given him and uh, the men that he has trained during the training ministry of his first advent uh, earthly ministry, but then uh, launching them forth into their own apostolic ministry after he departs. And so you can break the, uh, the Lord's Prayer up into those uh, an introduction, a celebration, and a commencement. And uh, that's how we're going to break down John 17. Before we begin, let's take a moment for silent prayer to make sure that we are filled with the Holy Spirit and that we are equipped to handle eternal truth. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we thank you for the truth of your word, for the privilege and blessing that we have to assemble together. Father, we ask for your uh, faithfulness once again to be manifested on this day, and we know that it will. Father, we know that you cannot help but being faithful. Your Holy Spirit will faithfully guide us into all things, even the deep things of God. Uh, Father, I pray that each one of us would also be faithful. Faithful to set aside distractions. Faithful to confess our sins. Faithful to approach your word in fellowship and in humility. Faithful, Father, to humble ourselves under that which we study. Because, Father, what you teach us today, we're accountable for. We have to submit. We must obey. We must make application. So, Father, uh, work in us to approach your word on this basis. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, John 17. This is the ninth and final point in the outline. The ninth and final point in the outline. And it's one of these slides. I'll just guess that one. All right. Slide number 30. Point nine, Jesus ends this discourse with a high priestly prayer on behalf of the imminent priesthood of the church. Jesus ends this discourse with a high priestly prayer on behalf of the imminent priesthood of the church. And so, really, uh, in the world you have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. That's his conclusion. Those, that's his conclusion in 1633. Those are the last words that he speaks in the second person 
uh, you know, vocative address to the eleven that he's speaking to. Then Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said. Now he turns to addressing the Father. He has addressed the eleven from chapter 13 all the way now through chapter 16. Now in chapter 17, he addresses the Father. So all of the you and yours that we have here in chapter 17 are not the eleven disciples. They are God the Father. Okay. When he talks about the disciples, he talks about them, those whom you have given me. Them, those guys. And uh, we'll see that very consistently throughout the entire chapter. In fact, it ends with a them uh, in verse 26. The love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. And then when Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of Kidron and he entered there with his disciples. All right, so this is what we're looking at. We're looking at this high priestly prayer. He has spoken everything to the to the eleven. Remember, Judas has gone to fetch the soldiers, so all he's left with now are the eleven believing disciples, the eleven about to become church-age apostles. And he's giving them a message that is a foreshadowing of the coming church. 13 through 17, this is all church-age doctrine. Now, it can't be fully unveiled until the church begins at Pentecost. It can't be fully unveiled until the New Testament is written to unfold it all. But what we have here, with hindsight, we look back and we see this is all church-age doctrine right here in 13 through 17. All right. Now, in this, we start with an emphasis on glory. His prayer begins with an amazing focus on glory. And it might be interesting to note how this does parallel in some respects the pattern of the baby prayer that is the Lord's, the so-called Lord's Prayer. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And it does start with a recognition of who the Father is and a highlight of his glory. And we'll find some parallel as well. Uh, hallowed be thy name. We, we have an emphasis in this on your name. Uh, Jesus is going to talk repeatedly about the Father's name, the name that he gave to the Son, and the name then that the Son extended to the disciples. And what is that name? Hallowed. Okay, And we'll talk about that. And he calls him Holy Father. He also calls him Righteous Father in this chapter. And the Holy and Righteous Father, the name that our Father has given to the Son, the name that the Son has given to us, is, is going to be fun for us to identify with what it is. Because it, it truly identifies us as royal family of God. It truly identifies us that we, we don't have Israel's blessings. We don't have the name of Abraham. We don't have the name of Isaac and Jacob. We don't bear the name Jew. We bear the name that God the Father has bestowed on God the Son. The God the Son has bestowed on us. We are royal family of God. And so uh, this is going to be enjoyable, hopefully, for us to, uh, to work our way through. Let's look at verses 1 through 5 and let's remind ourselves that this is how the discourse itself began. Uh, the prayer begins the same way that the discourse began, with the recognition of glory. All right. In fact, even before I read 17, 1 through 5, let me just remind you, 13, 31, and 32. The discourse began with glory. John 13:30 After receiving the morsel he went out immediately and it was night Therefore when he had gone out Jesus said now is the son of man glorified and God the father is glorified in him Okay I went ahead and put the words the father in there you understand that's the context So now is the son of man glorified and God the father is glorified in Christ God the father is glorified in Christ now, they're not going to understand this until Ephesians is revealed and all the depth of doctrine about in Christ is made clear. But we can understand it. And we can look back in hindsight and see what was being introduced here that God the Father is glorified in Christ in ways that He was never glorified before. Israel glorified the Father on a limited basis. The Gentiles glorified the Father on a limited basis. The angels glorified the Father on a limited basis. But you and I in the church glorify God the Father in Christ on an unlimited basis, on an eternal, infinite basis, because the Father is well pleased eternally, totally satisfied with God the Son. And our ministry in Christ gives God the Father the maximum glory, the maximum pleasure, the maximum blessing. 
So now is the Son of Man glorified and God is glorified in Him. If, and He is, God the Father is glorified in Christ, God the Father will also glorify Christ in Himself, that is, in the Father, and will glorify Him, Jesus Christ, immediately. Immediately. And we had a couple of classes at that time where we talked about immediate glory. The difference in the church age compared to any other age that preceded it is that we have immediate glory. Our ministry produces immediate glory. Israel was looking forward to a future glory, the coming kingdom. Gentiles looking forward to a future glory in terms of uh, I know that my Redeemer lives and that the last will take a stand and things to look forward to in the future. We have immediate glory in addition to future glory. Okay, The immediate glory of bearing fruit today and bearing fruit in eternity. Okay, Immediate glory. Now, this is how the uh, discourse began. It began with a message on glory. This is how the prayer begins. It begins with references to glory. Verses 1 through 5 of John 17. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so that purpose clause, the Son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, so that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. He says, mission accomplished. To Telestai, it is finished. I have done it. Now, Father, glorify me. You know that's an imperative verb? Glorify me. Do you have imperatives in your prayer life? You tell God what to do. Right? A mature prayer life does. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. And of course, what a beautiful thing. We understand this. This goes back to John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. We understand this is how the Gospel started off. So this is how his prayer starts off. Alright, so we begin with an amazing focus on glory. Four things I want to say about this. Four things I want to say about this. First of all, he doesn't say here, glorify your son, because I think that would be pretty cool. (laughs) Glorify me because I want to be glorified. Glorify me for me. No, it's glorify me that I may glorify you. There's a purpose clause for being glorified. The purpose for being glorified by the Father is in order to glorify the Father. The purpose for being glorified by the Father is in order to glorify the Father. You see how it is reciprocal. Same thing that it was in John 13. The Father glorifies the Christ and and the Father is going to be glorified in Christ. even go beyond that, that once the Father is glorified in Christ, the Father will give Christ additional glory in the Father. So the purpose for being glorified by the Father is in order to glorify the Father. Glorify the Son so that the Son may glorify you. May. The Son cannot until He Himself is glorified by the Father. See how this works? Now, Part of this we want to understand because we too have been glorified, right? And if you doubt that, um, come back on Sunday. And I guess two weeks from Sunday we'll be in uh, um, Romans 8. Those whom he called, glorified, okay? Predestined, justified. There's a whole chain of things there, including glorification. We are glorified. You and I are glorified. It may not seem like it. <laughs> Do you have days where you just don't feel very glorified? Okay. Amen. I do too. But thank God that glorification does not depend on how I feel about it. (laughs) Glorification is a positional truth. And I am glorified whether I feel glorified or not. Just like I am justified whether I feel justified or not. 
I am predestined. I am called. I am chosen. Whether I feel like it or not. Let's, con- let's not confuse glorification with our feelings. Also, let's remind ourselves of what glorified even is. Okay? Remember the definition of glorification? We taught it when we taught, therefore, you've been bought with a prize, therefore glorify God with your bodies. Way back in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Anyone want to stand up and give me their definition of glorification? Okay, I'll just remind you. How's that sound? Okay. The problem with... I think it's a problem with the English word. I think it's a problem with the phi or the fication. Okay? We're okay with glory, maybe. But the problem with phi and fication is that in English, phi and fication mean that I'm changing something. Okay? If I purify, I make something more pure. If I clarify, I make something more clear. Clear. Okay? If I, um, if I mystify, that means I'm confusing you. Okay? But I'm, everything that I phi means I'm affecting you. Or I'm affecting something. Okay? And the problem with glorify is that how do I affect God? Am I, am I really giving God a greater glory? When I glorify Him? And am I diminishing His glory if I don't glorify Him? This is why we have an issue that we better understand very quickly because if we don't, we're going to be in some huge trouble in trying to to defend uh, immutability. (laughs) God doesn't change. He is no more glorious intrinsically, eternally, infinitely glorious. If I glorify Him today, I don't add to His glory. And if I fail to glorify Him today, I don't diminish from His glory. Does that make sense? Okay. So the real issue is the fact that we've got to get the fiification out in our English way of thinking. English language way of thinking. Because glorified does not mean that I change God's glory or I make Him more glorious. The verb is doxadzo. Uh, the verb doxadzo comes from dokeo, to think. It's a thinking term. It's an attitude term. It's an estimation term. And so as I estimate God's worth, I either estimate His worth very highly or I estimate His worth very lowly. Now, it doesn't change what his worth is based on how I estimate it. All that changes is how I estimate it. All that changes is how I estimate it. So, if you've got a, if you've got a stamp up here with that upside-down airplane, you know what I'm talking about? There's a very famous uh, stamp, if you, a stamp collector, that uh, was, was, was a misprint. It was an American postage stamp that had a biplane on it, but the plane was inverted. It was the upside-down inverted biplane postage stamp. Okay? And it's worth a lot of money because there's very few of them. To a stamp collector, it's worth a lot of money. That's the intrinsic value. But the problem is, is you may look at it and not know what it is, not appreciate it for what it is, not value it appropriately. You can actually misvalue that and just lick it and stick it on an envelope, okay? And think it's a three-cent stamp or whatever it is, okay? Now, your misappreciation, did it change the value of that stamp? The stamp is what it is. Whether you appreciate it properly or you misappreciate it improperly. And that's the better way to think about glorification. Because glorification has to do with your valuation of God's worth. Your evaluation of God's worth and how you communicate it to others to influence their valuation of God's worth. If that's your, your most complete definition of glorification. You glorify God when you highly estimate the value of His worth And through words and deeds, you communicate that high value of God's worth to increase that value in other people's estimation. 
That's what, that's what you do when you glorify God. When you glorify God. You glorify God this morning. Because you value God highly. You value His Word highly. You value that assembling here today to receive instruction was valuable. It was more valuable than whatever else you could have been doing on a Wednesday morning. And so you valued it highly. And you communicated to others. Everybody here that sees you here. Everybody elsewhere that sees you not elsewhere. Okay? Gee, why is Joe not here? Okay? No Joe's here today, right? Okay. I'll have to pick random names. Where is Mortimer? Well, he's, he's a church. It's a priority for him this morning. And they may not understand it, but it's been communicated that you value God higher than you value the bowling league or whatever it is you could have been doing on a Wednesday morning. Alright? Now, why does God glorify us? Or first of all, how does God glorify us? <laughs> does God place value on us? And does God communicate the high regard He holds us? I believe so. I believe He communicates the value with which He holds us in that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. So what value, what price did He put on us? What did He spend? What did He give up? All right. And so you understand how it is that He glorified us. But did He glorify us for the purpose of us just being glorious? <laughs> you know, where we just shine in the universe and everyone's dazzled and amazed. Uh, you know, glory to Bob, great things he has done. No. If I am held in high regard by God the Father, that's not for me to boast about. That's so that I can glorify Him and celebrate how awesome He is. Look what He accomplished on my behalf. I didn't earn it or deserve it. The purpose for being glorified by the Father is in order to glorify the Father. Let's truly understand what glorification is. Sadly, you know, this world has misdefined all of this. Totally misdefined all of this. The whole, we just watched the Olympics for two weeks, and every night of the Olympics, we're talking about glory, talking about, you know, the Michael Phelps and his 22 medals and all these other... The, the glories of the, the victories and blah, blah, blah. And redemption. They use redemption too. I hate the way they use redemption. How do they use redemption? You lost last time. You won this time. Therefore, you redeemed yourself. Okay? Uh, this one runner, she settled for silver in uh, Athens. She settled for silver in, in Beijing. Now her third attempt in, in, in uh, London. And she wins gold. Redemption. She redeemed herself. Tragic. You know, redemption is our eternal glory in Christ. He purchased us. All right, enough of that. But this is the thing too. The world has its own definitions of glory. Based on the world's wisdom. It's foolishness before God, of course. All right. Secondly, God the Father has delegated authority over all flesh to God the Son. Now we could discuss a little bit about when did He do this. It's probably worthwhile. And even if you don't come to an absolute firm conviction, you should at least ponder what the options are and then chew on what you think is most likely. Notice, even as you gave him authority over all flesh. Is this the same or is this different from the Great Commission in Matthew 28? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me. Okay? So hold your finger here. Look over with me to uh, Matthew 28. And let's look at this. Matthew 28, 18 said, Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name, singular, 
of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So there's authority, and that authority is the basis for the command. Go therefore. Here there's authority. And the authority is not connected to a command given to human beings, but an expectation that Christ himself fulfills. So glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify you even as, in the same manner as, you gave Him authority over all flesh. That to all whom you have given Him, He may give eternal life. Alright, so, you want to ask yourself, we got authority in John 17, we have authority in Matthew 28. Is it the same authority? Is authority over all flesh the same or different as all authority in heaven and on earth? Or is there a difference? And the basis of which all authority in heaven and on earth is then the authorization for the command that Jesus gives to the apostles for the Great Commission. But here we don't have a Great Commission. And here we don't have a command that the disciples have to obey or do anything about. In fact, every expectation in verse 2 is an expectation of Jesus Christ to be faithful. God the Father has given Jesus Christ delegated authority over all flesh. And on the basis of that, there is a subset of all flesh called here, all whom you have given him. All whom you have given him. And in that subset, Jesus Christ is commanded to provide eternal life. He may give eternal life. Okay? Now, there's other things we'll consider on this. But for now, let's just leave it with a point that we have on the screen. God the Father has delegated authority over all flesh to God the Son. And our salvation, our salvation is a transaction between the Father and the Son. Our salvation is a transaction between the Father and the Son. But we see it comes off of this basis that all authority, all authority over all flesh has been given to the Son. And on that basis then, all whom you have given Him, this would be the subset, this would be believers, okay? All flesh includes believers and unbelievers alike. You know, all humanity in a human body. All flesh. But to all whom you have given him, that's a subset. That's not all humanity. That's to a subset, particular souls given by the Father to the Son. The Son then provides eternal life. Our salvation is a transaction between the Father and the Son. Now, it's not only here in verse 2. Look, uh, look as well. We've seen this previously in John 6, but let's look as well at verse 3, verse 6, verse 9, right here in this immediate context, and we'll see that it's in perfect agreement with what we previously saw in the Bread of Life chapter, back to John chapter 6. Verse 3 says, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So being in a relationship with God the Father and Jesus Christ is eternal life. When you, when you believe in Christ, this is the transaction that takes place. The, the gospel is presented. You believe in Christ. Jesus Christ executes the transaction between the Father and the Son. He provides the eternal life because the Father has provided you to Him. All right. Notice also verse 6. I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me. Now, all flesh is God the Father's. He delegates responsibility over all flesh to Jesus Christ, but all flesh remains God the Father's. But there are certain ones, the subset, that he gives to Jesus Christ, and we see that again here. So I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. 
Verse 9. I ask on their behalf. Talking about his 11 here. I do not ask on behalf of the cosmos, of the world. Remember, John, when he talks about the world, is almost always contrasting the unbelievers in the world with those that are saved. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the cosmos, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All things that are mine are yours. Yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. See, this is also important to recognize. Even though the Father has given us to the Son, we still belong to the Father. We just now belong to the Father and the Son. See, because everything that's the Son's is also the Father's. Everything that's the Father's is also the Son's in, in, in their unity. All right. Now, does this relate to anything we've seen before? Yes, it does. The uh, Bread of Life chapter in John chapter 6, verses 37 and 39, when we understand how is it that that uh, people get saved in the first place. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. And this is the language of what happens when we get saved. We come to Christ. It's an idiom. It's an expression. And it's not a, it's not a wrong idiom. It's a biblical idiom. The one who comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. He who comes to me, will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. you understand the poetry on that? The parallelism? Coming equals believing. They are placed in parallel. As in hunger is placed in parallel with thirst. Bread is placed in parallel with blood. You have to eat, you have to drink. But the activity, the, the, the event, the thing you do to make this happen is believe. When you believe in Christ, you have come to Christ. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. And most of the crowd he was talking to were still unregenerate. All that the Father gives me will come to me. The one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. You understand, the most powerful argument you will ever make with respect to eternal security is the argument that understands that our salvation is a transaction between God the Father and God the Son. <laughs> and for us to, to deny eternal security means that Jesus Christ is going to be faithless in His transaction with God the Father. And he will never be faithless in His transaction to God the Father. You have been given by the Father to the Son. If the Father had not given you to the Son, there's no way you could have or even would have come to Him. Say, no one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws Him. Understand how this works? So, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And this is, uh, this is key in understanding when was all authority uh, over all flesh given and when was all authority in heaven on earth given? I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that of all that He has given me, I lose nothing. He cannot lose a single believer. Not one. No, not one. Why? Because He has to be faithful in His expectation from the Father. That's right. And I will raise Him up on the last day. This is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life. And who gives that eternal life? Jesus Christ gives that eternal life. It's been delegated to Him. And I myself will raise Him up on the last day. So there's the second thing that I get out of John 17. First thing is that the purpose for being glorified by the Father is in order to glorify the Father. That's true for Christ. That's true for us. Secondly, God the Father has delegated authority over all flesh to God the Son. And our salvation is a transaction between the Father and the Son. It's the second thing that I glean out of this introduction. This is eternal life. They may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Thirdly, see, this 
I hope this helps. This, this, this can help you in your discussions pertaining to eternal security. It can help you in a lot of aspects related to our position in Christ, being a member of the royal family of God, things that are true and unique only in the church age that were not actually the case in uh, the dispensation of Israel, the dispensation of Gentiles. Uh, so when was delegated authority over all flesh given to God the Son? There's a question for you. <laughs> when was all authority in heaven and earth given to God the Son for the Great Commission? I believe the uh, Great Commission authority in heaven and on earth was given after he ascended to heaven. And so uh, the first ascension, when he came back to then give the Great Commission. Uh, in other words, it required his victory at the cross and it required his... His uh, ascension and the, the cleansing of the of the temple in heaven, but the authority over all flesh. When was that delegated? You could think of it as eternity past. You could think of it as when he was vested with the human spirit in hypostatic union, when he was given a human nature, um, or possibly when he himself uh, came in the flesh, when he was revealed in the flesh, when the Holy Spirit descended upon him at the baptism. Um, and all of those are very valid considerations and, and uh, matters for, uh, for future study. All right. Third thing. <clears throat> point three. The third thing I get out of this introduction of glory. Point three. Jesus achieved everything that could be done on earth in glorifying the Father. Verse four. It is now time to achieve everything that can be done in heaven in glorifying the Father. Jesus achieved everything that could be done on earth in glorifying the Father. In other words, He had demonstrated, He had performed miracles, He had taught, He had revealed the Father in every way permitted in the dispensation of Israel. It is now time to achieve everything that can be done in heaven in glorifying the Father. Let me phrase that a different way. He had achieved all the maximum glory that could be produced in his life. It is now time to produce the maximum glory that can be produced by his death. Will the death of Christ glorify God the Father? Oh, you bet. Yes, it will. In ways that his life could not do? Yep, it will. There are certain things you can only do while you're alive, and there are certain things you can only do in your death. That's true for us. It's true for him. And so if he assigns you an assignment to achieve in the um, coinciding of your physical death, are you willing to do that? You're commanded to. I'm commanded to. Say, well, he wouldn't expect me to do that. I mean, come on. I. <laughs> that's not. That's not us. I mean, we're we're uh, we're 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 wealthy, prosperous American Christians. I mean, martyrdom. That's for. That's for those unfortunate believers that live in the third world somewhere and in, in bad places. That's, that's for Christians in Muslim countries or Christians in Africa or China under communism. Or no, no, that's for those that's for those poor, unfortunate Christians that that weren't blessed enough to be born where we're blessed in this land of freedom and the home of the brave and wave the flag and we're the we're the shining glorious Christians here, God would never ask us to be martyrs. <laughs> okay, tongue in cheek. You understand. I, I, I have plenty of smiling faces live here in the, in the uh, auditorium. I, I better explain for anybody listening to MP3 right now, especially those listening in Africa and, and other places. All right. I don't think that you are the unfortunate cursed believers. I think you are very blessed. Very blessed. I think we are the unfortunate cursed believers. I think we 
fat, dumb, and happy living in, in Satan's maximum prosperity system. We're the ones that are, are uh, spiritual handicapped. We're the ones that are, that are just uh, diminished capacity for a lot of things. And the fact that uh, I'm not concerned about Muslims blowing up this church Sunday morning. I've got brothers and sisters in Pakistan that attend church and from week to week to week, they never know when they're going to get blown up, when a gunman's going to burst in and start shooting everybody. A pastor friend of mine had a cousin kidnapped for almost a month. All right? Keep that in prayer. In fact, that pastor may come visit us in October sometime. I'm hoping he does. And we can start to learn what it really means to name the name of Christ and pay a price for it. But I said those things I said a few minutes ago tongue-in-cheek because sadly it's the attitude a lot of Christians have, American Christians have. That part of God's blessing is that God obviously shines upon us. He smiles. He loves us so much that He let us be born in this country of, of freedom, in a country of blessing, in a country of wealth. And sure, I could have been born in a hut in Nairobi. But because I wasn't, that just proves that God predestined me and, and, and elected me and chose me to be right here. And this is why, you know, He's blessing me as wonderfully as He's blessing me. And He's not blessing them. See, that's wrong. That's backwards. And if that's our attitude, we need to change our thinking. I took Bob with me to the Philippines when he was 16. I'm glad I did. I take every 16-year-old to a place that does not have the luxuries that we have. All right? We have verse 4. We have verse 5. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. It is finished. It is done. Having accomplished. I glorified. Past completed action. You on the earth. Having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. He's done. Alright. Now, Father, He's ready to go to the cross. Now He's ready to die. He's going to cross from the, the realm of mortality and the physical dimensions of this universe. And in order to do that, how, how is it that we leave the mortal plane of existence, the physical universe? We die. Our soul spirit leaves this body. This body returns to the dust from which it was made. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself. <coughs> with the glory which I had with you before the world was. The pre-incarnate glory of God the Son before the existence of the physical universe. The glory that He actually laid aside, according to Philippians 2, that He emptied Himself. He laid aside His privileges. See, we sing that hymn, emptied Himself of all but love. I like how West Houston Bible Church rewrote that. We probably should do the same thing. Tape it into every single... Uh, every single hymnal on that page, emptied himself because of love. Because of love. The hymn kind of makes it sound like he laid aside all the other omni attributes, but somehow held on to the infinite, eternal love of, of the Godhead. Well, he emptied himself of everything. He laid aside the free use of all divine attributes because of love. I like, I like that phrase better. Emptied himself because of love. All right, well now it's ready to take up what he laid down. Now it's time to reassume the glory that he set aside. All right? And God the Father says, oh, you're going to get so much more than that. <laughs> you're going to get so much more than that. You laid aside all your pre-incarnate glory as God the Son. You've had that from eternity past. And yes, you're going to take all that back but I'm going to pile on to it even more. An even greater glory. An even greater appreciation for your worth. Greater than you had before. Because now you have the achievement of victory at Calvary. The achievement of victory. And until He had achieved that, 
he was not entitled to this additional appreciation and reverence and glory that he's entitled to, that God the Father bestows upon him. A name above every name. Okay? So an even greater appreciation because of the achievement of the victory on the cross. So Jesus achieved everything that could be done on earth in glorifying the Father. It is now time to achieve everything that can be done in heaven in glorifying the Father. And uh, this is why he says, greater works than these will you do because I go to the Father. And everything Jesus could do in his first advent to glorify the Father was, was monopresent. Okay? He was only in one place at one time. But now do you understand what Jesus Christ is doing to glorify the Father? Everywhere. In every believer. In every church age saint. Jesus Christ is glorifying the Father in Texas. In Africa. In Ukraine. In Philippines. In every place. Jesus Christ is in us. Glorifying His Father. And He's doing so while seated at the Father's right hand. I mean, the idea, He says it's time to die. And Peter says, far be it from thee, Lord, this should never happen to you. Get behind me, Satan. <laughs> what do you want me to stick around here for? What, what, what is there more that I can do? I've done everything that can be done here. See? You know, it's like folks, they're at the end of their life. They've done everything. Why stick around? Oh, boo-hoo-hoo, I don't want you to die. I don't want you to die. Well, they want to die. Okay? You know? Oh, I'm going to miss them. Yeah, okay. They're going to miss you too, but they'll see you on the other side. Haven't they done enough? Really? How selfish are you? You want them to suffer longer? You know, I think about John and Judy Miller and our brother John. I mean, bless his heart. And all the struggles and all the, 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 the congestive heart failure and the difficulty breathing and everything else. And like, man, can he just go home? Is he done? How selfish can I be? Oh, I want him to linger longer. I want him to suffer more. Why? Because I'm going to miss him? How selfish am I? Okay. Now, I'm not eager to just start killing off everybody. I'm, what I'm saying is, when the time comes... Don't grieve over that. When the time comes, when the time is made clear, when you can say, I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Paul's able to say that in Second Timothy at the end of his life. I've done the work you've sent for me to do. There is nothing left to do, nothing left to learn, nothing left to achieve. There's no additional purpose for being here. Why be here? Okay. The purpose for his life, the purpose for his death. And we see that, yes, the Apostle Paul also exhibited this attitude, as should every believer. Point four, the Apostle Paul also exhibited this attitude. Philippians 1.20, as should every believer. Not limited to the church age either. Job had this attitude in Job 13.5. Though the Lord slay me, yet will I trust in Him, yet will I hope in Him. Revelation 2.10 Be faithful until death. That's not be faithful except for death or be faithful up to the point of your death and then grieve over that, lament over that, try to run from that. No. Up to and including your final work assignment, which is your departure from planet Earth. Your departure from this sojourn. The Apostle Paul also exhibited this attitude. Philippians 1.20 As should every believer. Job 13.5 Revelation 2.10 What does Paul say in Philippians 1.20? talks about he's it's a prison epistle. And he says, you know what? Uh, yeah. Maybe I wouldn't pick out prison for myself, but since the Father picked this out for me, I see how it works together for good. Philippians 1.12 says, uh, I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. So thank God we're not in charge of our own circumstances. Rejoice that you don't pick out whatever race you want to pick out. 
You run with endurance the race that He sets before you. And so my circumstances have turned out. It's part of how all things work together for good. For the greater progress of the gospel. Not everything is good, but it will work together for good. (coughs) And even the things that are not good can turn out to produce an even greater fruit than what you would have produced if you'd have gotten your way and not done it. Say, you know, if, if you fail to do the not my will but thine be done, and you insist on saying not your will but mine be done, well then, yeah, you disobey and you go on your own, you just tootle along in your own permissive will. Until he overrules, until he disciplines you, until he gets you back where he wants you to be. But in the meantime, what have you lost? What fruit have you not borne? In all that lost ground, somebody else took your crown because, you know, the father didn't need you. He sent somebody else to get it done. But you lost out. So this turns out for the greater progress of the gospel so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and everyone else. <laughs> Look at the impact that he had, the people he had to testify to. All right. So it works together for good. He even goes on to talk about how, uh, you know, because he's been in prison, there's other people, because of my imprisonment, they have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Because, Paul says, because I suffered this imprisonment, other people were emboldened. And now their ministries are thriving. Is that worth it? Is it worth a little hardship for for your sake if all these other believers are edified and thriving? Christ gets a greater glory, doesn't he? If Paul had not gone through that tough thing, well then, how would all those other believers have been encouraged that way? They wouldn't have been. And so, ultimately speaking, Jesus would have had fewer people glorifying him. Now he's got more people glorifying him. And some are preaching, maybe out of envy or strife, but some also from goodwill. Okay, well, either way. Paul says, I'm thankful these Christ is getting preached. Even the... The flakes with a bad motivation are still preaching Christ, so who knows? God knows. So what then? What then? He's going to rejoice. Verse 19, For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance. This will turn out for my deliverance. Through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope, Now, we talked about this hope on Sunday. It's not a wishful thinking. It's not, well, I hope and maybe it will, maybe it won't. It is a positive anticipation. It is an expectation and hope, an earnest expectation and hope. It's a confidence. And interestingly enough, he is totally confident that God is going to deliver him. He just doesn't know the means. And he doesn't know the method. And he doesn't know it's either going to be whether by my life or my death in verse 20. And he's okay either way. If he lives, he gets released. If he dies, well, that's a release too. Okay? We had different codes that we would use in the jail. And I don't even remember them anymore. There were abbreviations and codes. You couldn't release anybody without the right release code. And you could have a release code, you know, to get him out of jail and get him back on the streets. Okay? And there was a release code for sentence complete. You know, a release code for judge's order. I mean, the sentence is not complete, but the judge ordered him released, so we release him. Uh, release code for uh, handing him off to another agency. We, we sh- they catch the chain, and we ship him out from the county jail to the state penitentiary. Uh, there's a release code for um, uh, a death in custody. Yeah, believe it or not, they died in custody, and so we released them from our custody. <laughs> you say, it's kind of strange. Well, that's actually necessary. If you don't do that, then you've got a bunch of dead people still in custody. So, if they die in custody, there's a release code. Different aspects. And so this is it. You know, Paul says, I don't know what my release code's going to be. I hope it's time served. I hope it's not guilty. I hope it's uh, a vacated, uh, uh, not guilty sentence, whereby judge's order, you're, you're free to go. You're released. But maybe it's uh, death in custody. Okay. Either way, Paul had an earnest expectation and hope. 
that I'll not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Even now, as always. Meaning, why should my death be any different than my life? Even now, as always. Why should my death... How do I conduct my death? How do I face death? See... Well, I just hope it's instantaneous and over in an instant before I even know what happens. I know it may be a massive car explosion and I'll never know what hit me. That way I won't suffer. That way I won't feel the pain. That way I won't even have a clue. I'll be dead before my body hits the ground. I won't even know. I'll just get to heaven and say, oh, am I in heaven? How did I get here? Okay. All right. Yeah, that's a physically safe way to do it. And, and you know minimizes the displeasant, uh, you know, things. Or do I want to get eaten by a shark where I feel every chomp, every bite, and I'm plunged under the water, and I choke, and I sputter, and then I'm back to the surface, and I'm back under the water, and the shark's rolling around, and there goes my leg, and there goes my arm, and limb by limb by limb, I go through the miserable agony. Have you been watching Shark Week the last... The last week has been Shark Week on Discovery Channel. Well, that's a gruesome way to go. Who wants that? Okay. The point is, we don't pick how we go. We're not supposed to. Okay. And whatever he chooses is his business. And the method of it, the timing of it, the duration of it, the painfulness of it, all of it is his assignment it's our assignment that he crafts. It's the race set before us. And so, even now, as always, that event should be no different than any other event. I want to face that event like I face every other event, every other test. These are the conditional circumstances in which I want to demonstrate to men and angels alike the high regard, the high value that I hold my Father in. And I want my Father to be glorified. I want my Lord to be glorified by anyone that's watching. Doctors, nurses, sharks. <laughs> anyone. The shark may even be, you know, Leviathan. You might even have a, a demon there. Let them know. Let the fallen angel know that I love my Lord and that I'm not afraid to die. All right. Secondly, we'll come back to this next week. Uh, you're familiar with Job 13.5, Though the Lord slay me, yet will I hope in Him. Um, Job has such a positive expectation of resurrection and eternal life. I know that my Redeemer lives. There's a lot there in the book of Job, and that's a Gentile believer with no Bible. But he's got a lot of doctrine pertaining to the resurrection and the glory of his Redeemer. Revelation 2.10, Be faithful unto death, I will give you the crown of life. You realize you throw away your crown when you fail to have victory in your final work assignment here on planet Earth. The second thing we'll come back to is main point B then. Remember, it's point nine. Jesus ends this discourse with a high priestly prayer on behalf of the imminent priesthood of the church. A, his prayer begins with an amazing focus on glory. And B, his prayer celebrates the disciples he has trained during his earthly ministry. His prayer celebrates the disciples he has trained during his earthly ministry. It's verses 6 through 19. I'd like to think that we pattern our training ministry here after Christ and his training ministry of his 12. All right. And so how do we pattern our training ministry? How do we, what methodology do we follow? What, what uh, curriculum do we pursue? What assignments do we, uh, do we give? What's the pattern and what's the application? Well, here's part of the pattern. The pattern is how about some celebration? <laughs> How about some recognition and awareness that our Father has given us some disciples here and we, it's been a privilege and blessing to train them. It's been a delight to train them. And there is uh, great encouragement over what we've been allowed to do. And there's great uh, excitement thinking about what they're going to do after we're gone. His prayer celebrates the disciples He has trained during His earthly ministry. They were yours and you gave them to me. We'll come back and we'll deal with this next week. We'll pick up on this. And then the third 
portion of the prayer, which is verses 20 through 26. His prayer looks forward to the coming disciples, the coming, I should say, apostles, the pending church. And uh, three points of study there. There's four points of study here under B. So we'll cover B and C next week. Lord willing and rapture pending. Father, thank you for your truth. Thy word is truth. And I rejoice. And Father, here's our Savior on the night in which he's betrayed. And you'd think he'd have other things on his mind. But he's praying for these, these knuckleheads, these disciples, these fishermen, this tax collector, these, these uh, people that are so afraid of what he's telling them, they won't ask them questions about it. And they don't want to hear the answers. And yet they're the ones that have been with him in his trials. And they're the ones that have followed with him. And uh, they're the ones that are going to go forth and testify to his resurrection and ascension. They're the ones that are going to go forth and establish the foundation of the coming church. And so, Father, I thank you for this high priestly prayer. I pray that we might study it deeper, that we might appreciate it for what it is, and that we might make our own daily applications, Father, to communicate to this world that you have glorified us so that we can glorify you. Thank you, Father. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.